0: The past and the present are on topic with IU. I'm Kenny Smith with the Media School at Indiana University, Bloomington. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Gunderman, a professor of radiology, pediatrics, and medical education at Indiana University. A man with a full schedule is Dr. Gunderman, so we thank you for taking a few moments to be with us today. It's a pleasure. You wrote some time back a fascinating piece for theconversation.com about the influenza outbreak of 1918 and since we continue to see hints and illusions in our popular media today comparing 1918 to the coronavirus pandemic i wanted to get a closer look at some of those comparisons first that's considered 1918 to be our most devastating pandemic and there's a wide range of estimated victims is that right
1: yes some have suggested perhaps only 15 or 20 million people died in that pandemic But I think more reasonable estimates suggest about 50 million people died, and some have said as many as 100,000 deaths over the roughly two years of that pandemic. And another interesting statistic, it's thought that about 500 million people contracted that flu between 1918 and and, and, uh, 1920.
0: A very wide variance there. I imagine that's because of record-keeping and technology and the dispersed nature of people at the time.
1: Exactly, and you might think that sort of problem wouldn't bedevil us today, but in fact, there are many uncertainties about the current COVID-19 pandemic. You know, every day you hear the number of uh, uh, asymptomatic individuals be larger than we suspected. So these problems of just adding up the numbers correctly are by no means behind us.
0: Then as now, and and a simplified answer I think works here just fine, but why is that sort of data point important to have a better grasp on than perhaps we can?
1: Well, in the case of asymptomatic individuals, if, uh, you know, there are ten times as many people who are infected who don't have symptoms as the number we know of who are symptomatic, and if those asymptomatic people can spread the infection, maybe at the same rate as symptomatic people, then it gets much more difficult uh, to try to contain the infection by, you know, getting symptomatic people to go into quarantine.
0: Even as we're wrestling with the first stage of this pandemic today, there are real concerns about a second stage, which seems highly probable, I understand. Once again, these are different illnesses, but the same thing happened a century ago. What prompts those sorts of returns or resurgences?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. The 1918 pandemic, uh, you know, took a great toll, but its first wave was actually relatively mild, and it was the second wave in, say, uh, around October of 1918 that caused uh, such such a huge number of deaths. And, you know, the same thing may be uh, true here as well, that uh, this SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, you know, may end up taking a greater toll, uh, in say a second wave or a third wave than it did in the first. One interesting thing to, to think about is that viruses, like other living organisms, are subject to the forces of evolution or natural selection. So if you're a virus, you might find it, uh, a good idea to try to kill fewer people. Because if you're the kind of virus that once people get infected, many of them die and die quickly, uh, you're not going to have a chance to spread as much if you were a virus, you know, that just caused a runny nose and a sore throat or something. But, uh, people could still, you know, go to work, go to school and infect others. So it could be that the forces of natural selection would uh, move a virus like this toward a more benign form. Where, uh, you know, the death rates weren't so high. That's just speculation. But, but that's an interesting possibility.
0: One big concern of that time was the Great War, World War I, masses of people in very small spaces. Did the travel required for going to war figure into the spread back then? Getting around was an entirely different prospect at the time, after all. People didn't leave home or their villages or the farms that much if that was their natural uh, location. Suddenly, they're being shipped by trains and by boats all over the country, all over the world.
1: Yeah. Uh, warfare, and particularly the style of warfare in World War I, was very well suited uh, to transmitting that influenza virus. Uh, for one thing, you know, trench warfare, uh, you had a lot of soldiers in very confined spaces. Another thing was, you know, it's the first World War, so you got people coming from all over the world uh, to take part in the military campaigns. And then when they're discharged or when the war is over, you know, they go back to all parts of the world. So, you know, back then there was less air travel, more uh, ship travel on the seas. But nevertheless, that gave a chance for that virus to spread basically all over the face of, of the inhabited Earth.
0: And think of how travel is much easier, comparatively speaking, for us to move around today today. You wrote, and we've talked a little bit about the population densities of the time, helping make the circumstance, and that maybe creates some potent strains of the flu virus. I'm assuming this is the mutation effect that an epidemiologist would explain today about the coronavirus, and that can help get to one reason why dense cities can be such big hotspots.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. The more densely packed human beings become— Uh, the more favorable it is to transmission of at least some kind of infectious organisms. And certainly a virus that's transmitted by a respiratory route, you know, when somebody coughs or sneezes and somebody else, let's say, inhales it, uh, high density is going to be very favorable to transmission.
0: If that's your circumstance and that's your lifestyle, living in a big layered city perhaps, what additional precautions can you take?
1: Well, you know, the the closer you are to somebody, uh, the more likely you are to inhale droplets uh, from the air they exhale or cough or sneeze. Uh, So keeping distance can be helpful. Uh, Being in well-ventilated areas can be helpful. Uh, I guess the outdoors would be a particularly well-ventilated area. And then, of course, uh, trying to prevent those droplets from being transmitted from one person to another So wearing masks, you know, we don't know exactly how effective masks are, but uh, I'll tell you, people were wearing masks in the midst of the flu pandemic in 1918, and we like to think we've come a long way since then, but 102 years later, uh, wearing a mask is still one of the best recommendations
0: we can make. I suddenly want to avoid all the elevators that I might come into contact (laughs) with as well. You mentioned that distance from then to now, in 102 years, it's all but past from living memory. So remind us, what worked then and what did not work back then?
1: Yeah, well, you, you know, they had no antiviral drugs, and they couldn't even use the word virus the way we understand it today. Uh, you know, we needed additional advances with microscopes to even be able to see viruses. So people knew very little compared to what we think we know about viruses today. So there were no medications against them. And furthermore, there were no vaccinations against viruses back then. So today we have some drugs, at least one, and, uh, you know, there's very active research to try to identify other antiviral drugs uh, against the disease. And then, of course, uh, many different vaccines are in development. Uh, so these are some examples of initiatives we can undertake today that simply weren't possible in 1918. And yet, like 1918, the advice would be, you know, don't go in, let's say, elevators if you don't have to. In other words, don't be in close, confined spaces with people, particularly people who have symptoms of the disease. Uh, wear a mask. Watch your, wash your hands frequently. One frequent recommendation back then that we don't see much so much today is no spitting. I have a sense everybody must have been big spitters back in 1918 because there were so, so many public health warnings against it. But, you know, this business of social distancing, masks, quarantining people who, who are sick, uh, this is the same stuff we were doing 100 years ago.
0: Immunization didn't solve the problem back then, so what caused that 1918 pandemic to eventually wind down?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. I don't think anybody knows for sure the answer to that. But one factor may have been that the virus, that mutations in the virus that made it less virulent, uh, that took a less severe toll on the health of people who were infected, that may have actually been an, a, an advantage to the virus. So you may have had less virulent forms of, uh, of the virus. Another thing that happened is that World War One ended. And you know, that produced another wave of transmission of the virus. But once everybody got home, you didn't have uh, masses of young people, back then young men mainly, congregating and then dispersing. So that probably helped as well. And then, uh, Another factor would just be uh, what's sometimes called herd immunity. Once enough people get infected, once there are enough resistant people who are unlikely to be affected again, the rate of transmission just uh, inevitably goes down.
0: 100 years is 100 years, and it seems difficult to me to overstate how vast That amount of time is in terms of medicine and research. How are you and your contemporaries now better armed for a pandemic today than the scientists and doctors of that age?
1: Well, we know what viruses are, and we can actually take pictures of them and determine their genomes, you know, the genes that code for the different uh, components of the virus. We understand antiviral drugs, medications much better than we did then. We have uh, the technology to produce immunizations, hopefully very large numbers of uh, doses of vaccines in a relatively short period of time. So we know our, let's say, enemy, uh, the virus and how it acts much better today than people were able to know in in 1918. And, you know, that turns out to be a huge advantage. It's not coming as fast as we'd like. You know, we may not have a vaccine till the end of the year, or maybe even next year. Who knows? So everybody wishes that it were coming faster. But you know, we're able to undertake initiatives like the development of vaccines that people simply couldn't do back then.
0: From a social standpoint, how was it different a hundred years ago? Did people rail against the idea of wearing masks?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part of the American spirit is, uh, you know, a kind of resistance at being told what to do. So people have always, you know, grumbled about needing to wear masks or, you know, the fact, let's say, that the movie theaters are closed or you can't get into your favorite restaurant or gym or something like that. But, you know, I think over time, people begin to appreciate that uh, they're not only making choices about their own health, their own lives, But, you know, the the choices they make impact uh, their family, their neighbors, their communities. You know, in a way, we're all responsible for each other. And I think if that sinks in over weeks and months, uh, resistance to things like wearing masks uh, tends to diminish over time.
0: From a medical perspective, both contemporary and with an eye on history here, is there anything that I can remember about the influence of 1918 and apply today personally?
1: Yeah, I would say uh, social distancing, wearing a mask, you know, trying to make sure that good information about the uh, the virus, the, the disease, the pandemic is disseminated. You know, sometimes there's misinformation out there that uh, because we've got, uh, you know, the internet can be transmitted very far and wide in a very short period of time. I think we all have a responsibility to try to To promote the uh, sharing of good information and uh, to prevent the sharing of bad information, you know, about the cause of the disease or who's affected by the disease, what transmits it and things like that. I think uh, one of our best disinfectants, so to speak, is uh, accurate knowledge.
0: Sunshine goes a long way in our business. Are there lessons yeah. Are there lessons from that time that institutions or perhaps even governments should be applying, but maybe we've seen them struggle to do so today?
1: Yeah, I think uh, one problem is back in World War One, countries were very reluctant to share information with each other, and even the popular press wasn't reporting uh, the full extent of the pandemic because, of course, if you're in Germany— you don't want your enemies in France or England or the U.S. to know how your population's being devastated by influenza. And on the other hand, if you're in the United States, you don't want the Germans to know uh, how tenuous the uh, pandemic makes your military. So, you know, one thing uh, we can do is uh, try to cooperate across national boundaries, uh, share information, you know, as soon as we get it. Because, uh, you know, this is not a Chinese virus or an American virus or a British virus. Uh, this is something that afflicts uh, all human beings. And uh, sometimes we can get too, a little bit too nationalistic, I think. And, uh, you know, we don't want to look bad in the world press. This may compromise our economic fortunes. Let's keep this information under wraps. Uh, you know, the, the medium and long-term consequences of not sharing information or sharing incorrect information can often be more dire than we suppose.
0: And finally, now that we've traded on your historical knowledge, and since we like to point out here very regularly that the coronavirus is still very much a new focus of study, what's been the latest sorts of insights that medical science are learning in these last few weeks, and how might that apply to all of us?
1: Well, I think one of the most remarkable findings is the very large proportion of patients who uh, are asymptomatic, who never develop uh, difficulty breathing or a sore throat or, or as we've heard, lose their sense of smell, but uh, seem to weather the infection without any symptoms, and that that has really radical implications. uh, If we don't know who's sick, uh, and in particular, who's capable of transmitting the virus, it's going to be very difficult to keep uh people who are infected uh out you know from infecting others so i think that's uh, an evolving news story today and uh, as we come to understand better why some people get sick and others don't uh that'll provide us with new and very important information to try to contain the pandemic
0: Dr. Richard Gunderman is a professor of radiology, pediatrics, and medical education at Indiana University. Dr. Gunderman, we thank you for joining us today.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: And we thank you for listening as well. For more information, follow us on social media. On Topic with IU is on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe and download this podcast from services like SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Just search On Topic with IU on your favorite podcast provider. And on social media, be sure to search the hashtag In to stay up to date on the broader statewide campaign. For On Topic with IU, I'm Kenny Smith.